It's a powerful video, isn't it? Well, good morning. My name is Patrick Gala, and um, if you have not been here for the last seven weeks or so, uh, I am the ministry intern. Uh, this is my seventh week uh, here helping Randall um, do some things, and I've had the f summer free, so I've been able to come in and be with you guys for seven weeks. So I'm excited to be here this morning. I'm excited that you all have trekked out through this stormy weather. I'm not sure if it's still raining, but it was kind of pouring cats and dogs earlier. But uh, this is my last Sunday, and I'm going to be, thank you, some of you guys are upset. Thank you, Mario. Appreciate that. It's one out of you know, all of you guys. Um, this is my last Sunday. I'm going to be back on the road tomorrow, heading back to Virginia. I have one semester left in my master's program at Liberty University School of Divinity. So pretty fitting, on my way out, they have asked me to preach. And so I'm excited to be here this morning. Hopefully you're excited too. And I actually have a unique uh, opportunity to be starting a new series with you guys. So I am pretty jazzed about it. I hope you are too. It's going to be a three-week series. And as the title gives it away, we're going to be talking about radical forgiveness. And so we're going to be walking through a three-week series. And radical forgiveness is not just a plain old, everyday type of forgiveness. It's radical. Did you catch the adjective? And so when it comes to this radical forgiveness, we're going to be talking about three aspects of it. We're going to be talking about getting it, giving it, and living it. So we're going to be talking about getting it, giving it, and living it. And so as we today focus this morning our attention, we're going to be focusing on getting it, radical forgiveness. And so hopefully I'm going to help us do two things. That's my desire anyways. I want to help us to do two things. I want to help us get it as in understand it and then get it as in actually receive it and rest in it. Okay, so this morning we're going to be in Acts chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead, mark your, mark your spot in Acts chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be some Bibles in the pew backs in front of you. You can go ahead, uh, slip your sermon insert there in Acts chapter 3. It's going to be a few moments before we get there, but I wanted to give you a heads up. Okay, and uh, before we go there, I'm going to ask you guys, all right, I'm going to call out Brian right now. I'm going to ask you guys to do me a solid, all right? I don't know if anybody caught that last week, but Brian said, can you guys do me a solid? And if you don't know this, that's kind of really gangster, all right? So Brian, I didn't know you were that gangster, but to do me a solid means kind of on the street to do me a favor, all right? So Brian said, do me a solid. So I'm going to ask you to do me a solid. I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. Okay, so before we go to Acts chapter 3, I want to take you on a journey. And I want, I want you to imagine something for me, okay? And I want you to walk with me, to hear me and envision this happening. So I want you to imagine it's 65 AD, okay? So begin to imagine it, 65 AD. And you're an average Jewish worshiper. And you're on your way to the temple. And if you remember, or if you know, as an average Jewish worshiper, the temple is the center for worship. It's the center of culture and society. Everything starts and stems from the temple. And so you're going there, you're walking there, just maybe just as you came to church here at Randall this morning, envision yourself walking to the temple. You have your kids, the hustle and the bustle of children. Maybe it's 3 p.m., and 3 p.m. for them would have been one of the normal worship times as a normal Jewish worshiper would have went to the temple. All right, and so remember, you're in Israel, and you're in Jerusalem, so what, what do we think about? We think about dirt and dust. It's dry, and so you feel the dirt crunch between your toes, and you feel the dust kind of fall off the leather of your sandals, and your feet are all dirty. And you look around and you notice the, the normal crowds, you see the normal faces, the people, even though there's thousands of people there, this would have been a ritual for you on your way to worship the Lord. And you would have been on your way to sacrifice or to pray, to atone for your sin. And so you would have seen the normal people that went here every single day, multiple times of the day. 
All right, and so you start to work through the city, you work through the hustle and the bustle of Jerusalem. There's a lot going on, there's people selling things, there's people talking, conversating, there's just, you know, people hanging out, kids are running through the street. It's just the normal hustle and bustle of a large city, right? It's hot, it's hectic, it's dry, and then you see it. You work through the city, you beat the traffic, and you see the white, the giant white-washed stone walls of the temple, hundreds of feet high. And you're shocked. And you're shocked because you've just fought all of this traffic, and for some reason, every day when you go there, just the largeness and the vastness of the size of the temple takes your breath away. Remember, the temple is the center for everything that is Jewish. And so you look at one of the gates and you're trying to figure out your way in here and then, okay, there's a gate over here and a gate over here and the one over here is is called beautiful. It's a gate that is called beautiful. And normally maybe you wouldn't go through that gate because it's one of the main gates and normally you would kind of maybe slip in the backside of the temple because these other gates are smaller. But for some reason, the traffic pattern that morning, you know, just like your way here, the 90, the 190, Main Street, the traffic pattern was less. So you slipped in through the gate called beautiful. Okay, and so you're walking in that direction, and, and as you're going there, you you notice kind of a kind of a scene that's happening, and you, you you notice a man, and you notice that the man is kind of he's sitting on the ground and he's slumped up against the wall and he's sitting on this mat, and as you get closer to the man, you notice that it's one of those mats where maybe like somebody who was crippled or couldn't walk. He, he, it's one of those mats that people kind of carry him around on. And so you make your way closer and closer to this gate and you see this man slouched up against the wall and then it was kind of ambiguous but as you get closer the story starts to kind of unfold and it starts to come together and you realize that this is a lame man. And what he's doing is he's begging for money at the gate that is called beautiful. So larger gate, people are coming in and out, and there's a man begging people for money. And, and then as you get even closer, you think to yourself, oh yeah, wait a second, I know this guy. This is the guy who has been here like my whole life. This is the guy that comes here every day, so, somebody brings him here, it's family or friends, and they bring this man here, and you've never once, as far back as you can remember, you've never once seen this man walk. And you've always noticed that his legs, they're disfigured, he's crippled, he's lame. And so all of your years of going to the temple, this man, as you've gotten closer, you recognize this man to be who he is. He's the man that has always been there. You know, there's a man in my old neighborhood in uh, North Buffalo, Kenmore area, and maybe you might know him, but we used to know him as Dancing Roberto. Okay, this is serious. Okay, this is a guy that would just, he'd have headphones on, he'd be walking around the city, and he would be kind of listening to music and jamming out. We just, he was there for all through my childhood, and even now when I take a ride down into North Buffalo, Kenmore, I see this guy. So this man, this lame beggar, has been there for so long, maybe so long that he's kind of almost become a part of the temple itself, like a fixture on the wall. And so you get even closer, and then you realize that this man is talking to somebody. Now you're intrigued because normally kind of people who are lame or or have some physical issues or leprosy, they're kind of shunned by the community. And so it would be not normal for somebody to be talking with him. But here he is engaging in conversation with with two men. And so now you're intrigued. And so you get even closer and you notice that the two men that this beggar is talking to, remember, Lame beggars, never walked a day in his life. He's talking to two men. And you're making your way through the city because remember, there's thousands of people there and you're fighting traffic. And so this was kind of off at a distance and you keep getting closer and closer and closer to the gate. And then you start to realize, wait a second. The two men that he is talking to are two men that you have seen with that guy, Jesus. And that guy, Jesus, was the man who claimed to be God, who was beaten and crucified years prior because of that very declaration. He claimed to be God. And here's this lame beggar, and, and he's speaking with two of his disciples or two of his followers. 
And so you can remember all of the tension as your mind takes you there, all of the tension that would have been connected to this man named Jesus from Nazareth. You see, he kind of all of a sudden came onto the scene and he was declaring himself to be God, to be the Messiah. But yet all of the religious leaders of the day, all of the people who oversaw all of the temple worship, all of the people who knew the religious system, all of the people who knew the ancient writings, the Old Testament law, they all said that this man's claims to be God were not true. And so there was political tension, socioeconomic tension. Through the grapevine, you kind of heard of these healings and these miraculous signs and that was associated with Jesus. And, and you're like all very intrigued. And so the fact that this lame beggar is talking to two of Jesus' disciples is just in shock. You are in shock. And so as you get closer, you're realizing that they're, they're talking to one another. And now you're really intrigued. You're like, they're actually like having a conversation. This is crazy. To a Jew, this would have been madness. And so now you're super interested, right? And so you got to get a little bit closer and you push your way through and you kind of stick your ear in there and you kind of realize that this man is actually asking Jesus' disciples for money. And so now you're like even more shocked and you're wondering, okay, what's going to be their response? And so you get even closer and you can hear everything that's happening and he's begging them for money. And then one of them, one of the guys, he kind of looks older than the other guy, he looks right at them with just this weird authority. And he says to the man this, he says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I give to you, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And then all of a sudden you're just like, what is going on here? All of a sudden, to your absolute amazement, the man who was lame, the man who was disfigured, his legs were crippled, you have never once in all of your life seen this man walk, stands up and walks. And he didn't just like learn how to walk. Like if you think about a toddler and you're trying to teach the toddler how to walk, it wasn't like feeling his way around. No, this man shot up to his feet started walking all around the temple gate and then proceeds to jump and he's running and he's just screaming and he's shouting with joy and he's proclaiming the goodness of God. And so can you see this moment? And can you feel it? Do you hear the words that these men just proclaimed to the beggar? And can you hear the beggar's response? who spent his entire life disfigured, crippled, begging people for money. He was a social outcast. No one would have, besides maybe his closest family, would have really had no association with him. He jumps up to his feet and he walks for the first time in his life. So all this talk was swirling around about Jesus, who he was. Remember, the religious leaders of the day were denying that Jesus was the Son of God. But Jesus does just the opposite, proclaiming that he was in fact the Messiah, the Son of God. And he does so demonstrating day by day miraculous things. And then now, even after he was crucified, which if you were there in 65 AD, that would have, that would have been years prior, so you could vaguely remember all of those stories. Even now, after Jesus was dead and crucified and gone, you can see the miraculous still happening. And now Jesus, who according to accounts died, was crucified, resurrected. And you hear through the grapevine that he appeared to all of his disciples and then to some 500 people. So to an average Jewish worshiper, this whole scenario would have been bonkers. <laughs> A man raising from the dead, Jesus, that's, that's crazy. A man who just spent his entire life lame, couldn't walk, was given the ability to walk. I want you to really put yourself in the shoes of an average Jewish worshiper there that day and feel it. Feel the tension that's surrounding this story. 
And so this is Luke's account. Luke writes the Gospel of Luke, and then he proceeds to write the account of Acts. And this is his beginning for us in Acts chapter 3, when you look at verses 1 through 10. This is the story that happens there. Now that we have kind of set the stage for the context of where we're going to be this morning, as we look at verses 11 through 26, we can then look and see Peter's response. You see, Peter was the man who said this to the beggar. To the beggar, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And so Peter then turns to the crowds of people, and we know that there's a huge crowd there because in the next chapter it tells us that thousands of people were there and listened in. And so Peter then recognizes that he has this whole crowd of people, and this just crazy thing just happened, this miracle just happened, and now they're all wondering, okay, what just happened? And so he turns to the people, and he begins to unfold a message. And so if you do have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 3. Before I read it, I'm going to ask the Lord, um, I'm going to go to the Lord in some prayer, and I'm going to ask him just to be here with us today as we, to help us understand his word and, and to help us understand what he's saying. So, Lord, I do want to thank you for this opportunity. Because you're good, you're faithful to your people. I ask, Lord, that through your Holy Spirit, you would help us to understand your word. Help us to understand it and apply it, heed it, and then live according to your ways. We ask that you'd be with us and that you would bless us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're looking at Acts chapter 3, starting at verses 11. And so when he clung to Peter and John, this is the lame man, the beggar, when he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together at them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at, it, stare at us as though by our own power or pity we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Remember, they asked for Barabbas. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murder to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in, in ignorance as you did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. And he says in verse 19, Repent therefore and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed to you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And then he says in verse 22, Moses said, that the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You, will, you shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who come after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophet and, you are, and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you away from your wickedness. And may God bless the reading of his word. And so what we have here is we have a sermon. And Peter is, is responding to the onlookers and essentially preaching a message. And if you can remember, if you look back at Acts chapter 2, Peter just preached the sermon at Pentecost. And it says in Acts chapter 2 that after he preached, when the Spirit was poured out, some 3,000 people were added to the kingdom. Peter preaches and some 3,000 people come to Christ. So Peter's kind of on this roll, all right? Maybe a few days later, and this lame beggar is healed by the power of Jesus. And so as a good preacher, he seizes this opportunity to speak. And so as we follow this sermon, there's three things that I want you guys to see. 
And the first part of the sermon, that pe- first point of the sermon that, that Peter makes, and I want you to notice is this. If you look at Acts chapter 3, 11 through 16, Peter points us to the power of Jesus. Okay, you see, all these people were looking on with amazement. The man who had just, the man they, who they had known from birth, who had been lame from birth, excuse me, had just been miraculously healed. And so surrounded by thousands of people who've just watched this whole thing unfold, Peter speaks. And the first thing he points out and he wants to clarify is the fact that, hey guys, I know this miraculous thing just happened, but this was not, this had nothing to do with our pity or our compassion. And it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't myself and it wasn't John who healed this man. It was the healing power of Jesus. And it was the healing power of Jesus' name. So there they are. And it says the beggar is clinging to their legs. He's clinging to the legs of Peter and John. He's most likely terrified. So the crowds might have been a bit anxious, um, maybe a bit hysterical. And I think if I kind of go back to put myself in their shoes, and if you put yourself in their shoes again, think about what it would be like if you came into Randall Church this morning and, and a guy who had been lame since birth had been healed. That would have been crazy. All right, so the crowd, thousands of people rush Jesus and rush this man. Sorry, rush Peter and John and rush this man. And perhaps this man had known how quick a crowd like this can turn on people. After all, this was the same people who had welcomed Jesus into the city through the triumphal entry, who then had later turned on him and demanded his crucifixion. And so here, Peter, look, look at what he says in verse 12. He says this, as they're all looking on, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though it was by our own power or pity that has made this man walk? It wasn't their own power of healing. It wasn't even the compassion or pity that they had toward this man. It was simply the power of Jesus. And if you look at verse 13, it says this, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. And then in verse 16, and in his name, Jesus, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And so did you catch the whom you see and know? Peter was smart enough to point out the fact that everyone who was in the audience most likely would have known this guy. He would have been there for years. They would have realized that this man had been lame since birth. And they all knew him to be this man. And then further, they saw with their own eyes the sad life that this man lived begging people for money. A bit humiliating for him. And then they, sw- they witnessed this very man stand up and walk. And he was healed. And it was the faith that this man had in Jesus and the power that Jesus had as the Son of God to make this man whole. The power of Jesus had given this man perfect health, it says, both physically and spiritually. And then Peter says in verse 16, if you look, that this man had faith in Jesus' name, and the faith in Jesus' name, believing who Jesus claimed to be, healed this man and gave him complete wholeness. And so then as we move, in, move along in our passage, the second part of Peter's sermon that I want you to notice is this. If we look at verses 17, 17 through 21, Peter points us to the problem of sin. So he first pointed us to the, the power of Jesus, and now he points us to the problem of sin. And having laid the foundation for his sermon, he next makes a startling indictment. A startling accusation. In 17 through 21, he indicts the entire crowd and their leaders and points out their sin. The, accus- the accusation made by the apostles stands against the Jews and the leaders who gave up Jesus to the Roman officials to be crucified. And this was a major problem. And Peter says that this was a major sin problem. The man Jesus was given over by these people to the authorities to be crucified. That very man, as the Bible tells us, was a man who lived a perfect life. And so the accusation is that he didn't deserve to die. He was completely innocent. And so they all stood guilty. The crowd there. 
The death of an innocent man was on their hands. They mocked and they scoffed and they humiliated Jesus. They had beaten, they had whipped, and they had scourged him. And if you remember the story in the Gospels, they had torn the beard from his face. And they had then taken a crown of thorns and pressed it down into his head. And then as he walked the Via Dolorosa, people spit on him and mocked him and threw stones at him, having to bear the weight of a multiple hundred pound cross made of wood, carries it all the way to the place where he would be crucified. And then they hung him there to die as they mocked him and ridiculed him. And he hung naked. Peter says in verse 15, And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. What's interesting, though, and I want you to see this, though they did this, and Peter rightfully indicts them, they murdered the author of life. Peter says that all of this took place because of what God foretold through the Old Testament prophets. You see, all of this was the plan. Jesus was the plan all along before the foundations of the world, the Bible says. Jesus Christ was the Messiah that all of the Old Testament spoke about. And we'll mention more about that in a moment, but I want you to see this. As we move forward through this, this section here, Peter has indicted them of their sins. And then next, further, he accuses them, he indicts them, and next, further, he calls them to repent. And if you're here today and maybe you're not familiar with the biblical language of repentance, it just means to turn away from their sins and turn to God. And so he says in verse 19, if you look, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you. Peter grants them an opportunity to be pardoned of their sins through confession and repentance and faith in Jesus, the very person whom they gave over to be killed. You see, only Jesus, as it says in verse 21, can restore all things. And just as Jesus restored the physical health of that lame man, Jesus could and would restore the spiritual health of those who would call upon his name. And so the third and last point that Peter makes that I want you to see and I want you to notice is this. When we look at verses 22 through 26, Peter points out the promised Messiah. And so remember, as we go back at the beginning of his sermon, he attempts to redirect the attention away from John and himself, and he points the crowd toward the power of Jesus and the power of Jesus' name. Then he reminds them that they were, in fact, were the ones that put Jesus on the cross, and he reminds them of their, their problem of sin. And then lastly, Peter seeks to validate his entire message by proving that Jesus is indeed the Son of God and is indeed the Messiah, the anticipated one. You see, all through the Old Testament, as we read, we have this anticipation that is building. And the anticipation builds as we wait for the promised Messiah, the one who could one day bring complete restoration. And so track with me through some passages of the Old Testament. When we look at the Old Testament, we're introduced to a couple different things. We're introduced to the Old Testament law, okay? And God uses this man Moses to write the law and really encapsulate in great detail how God would want his people to live. And if you can remember in Leviticus 20, God has the Israelites or his people. He calls them my people. But he also says, look, I want you to be holy for I am holy. And because they are his people, he wants to set them aside and consecrate them unto himself. They have a specific purpose. And so he says, be holy for I, your God, am holy. They're distinct and separate. But I want you to catch this one thing there's still a problem even then. And it's the problem that Peter indicts the crowd years later, and it's a sin problem. And we'll see that this sin problem goes all the way back to the beginning of time, to the, be to the beginning of creation. When we look and, and we remember the story in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 at the Garden of Eden, we see that the sin problem was there. But as we continue our train of thought, we see God establish within this law a sacrificial system that really offers sacrifice and payment for their sins. 
See, God demands payment for the problem of sin. And so as the sacrificial system is instituted all through the Old Testament, the priests go representing the people of God to God and they bring their sacrifices and they bring their prayers and they go on behalf of the people representing them to a holy God. And then the prophet Habakkuk says this in Habakkuk 1.3, that God's eyes are pure and can't look upon evil. God is completely holy. He's completely pure, completely perfect. And his people, and really all people for that matter, are not. And so there's this separation. And all of through the Bible, it seems that only blood can offer forgiveness or atonement for the sin. And then as we continue to move through the Old Testament, all through the Old Testament, we see several different roles. And we see these roles that were designated by God and given to help the people function in a healthy society. So the three major roles were these. We have the roles of the prophet, we have the roles of the priest, and we have the role of the king. And that while the people who filled these roles were helpful and good, they ultimately fell short. And they fell short because there was still a sin problem. And so most of them, well, I'll say this, some of them were good, some of them weren't. But all we see through Scripture is the, one con- is the one constant. Even Moses, even David, even all of the prophets and Isaiah himself all had one problem. And it was a sin problem. And so this anticipation builds, and the anticipation is this, is that there is a hope that one day this sin problem wouldn't be here anymore. And that one day there would be this one figure who would perfectly fulfill the role of prophet and priest and king. And they called this person the Messiah, the anointed one. And he would one day come and he would once and for all deliver God's people from their sin. And so Peter knows all of these things. He's with, he's with the Jewish audience, right? He's, he's a smart guy. He's a good preacher. So he goes right to Deuteronomy 18. And you don't have to turn there if you don't want to. But he says this, and he quotes this in our passage. If you look at it, actually, you can look at verses 22 and 23. He says, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. And you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. You see, Moses was kind of the first prophetic figure that stepped on the scene in the Old Testament. He was so incredibly respected by the Jews. And after all, this was a man who wrote the Torah. He saw God face to face. And he delivered all of the Israelites out of the hands of the Egyptians. And so when we talk about heroes of the Old Testament, and when we speak to a Jewish worshiper about a hero, Moses certainly would have been it. And so he's smart in going right to Deuteronomy 18 and quotes these passages and says, look, even Moses said that one day God will raise up a prophet like me. And if you don't listen to what he has to say to you, you will die in separation from God. And so we, we really see Peter demonstrating that even Moses, hundreds of years before Jesus, had an understanding that one day there would be an anticipated Messiah. Peter explains that in verse 24, that all of the prophets who have spoken from Samuel on and those who come after him also proclaim these days. All of those prophets, as it builds an anticipation, all speak regarding a future Messiah who would one day come and deliver all of the people once and for all from their sins. And then continue to track with me for another brief moment as we walk through the, the second portion of the Old Testament. I want you to think and remember a few passages in Isaiah. And these passages are titled Suffering Servant Songs. And, and, and you're like, okay, what is a suffering servant song? Well, as I read them, they're going to be passages that you remember. And Isaiah records this in Isaiah 42. Listen to his words. He says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. And then if you 
kind of fast forward to Isaiah 53. We all know this passage well. Isaiah again records this in verse 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. See, guys, these prophecies all took place about Jesus. And they took place hundreds of years before Jesus was ever on the scene. And the Jewish people would have known these passages so well. And they anticipated it and they waited for a coming Messiah. And especially after hearing about and seeing really the crucifixion, I'm sure many of them began to wonder, man, was Jesus the one? Was he this anticipated Messiah that we all waited for? Maybe he really was the one who he claimed to be, the Messiah, the Son of God. And then one more thing in our passage here in Acts. Peter calls the people to remember the Abrahamic covenant. And the Abrahamic covenant is a very special covenant to the Jewish people. Through the covenant, God promised that he would bless the world through their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he says in verse 25 and 26, if you look, he says this, you are the, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with you. And your father saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And then in verse 26, God having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. He's saying this, he's saying, guys, look, Jesus is the one that we have been waiting for. All of the Old Testament proclaims that the Messiah would come. And then Jesus steps on the scene and he says this in Luke chapter 22 that all of the prophets and the writings and the law are written and speak concerning me. The anticipation that was building through hundreds and thousands of years of one who would be able to deliver you once and for all from your sins is me. And I'm here. And this is what Peter calls them to. He's saying, look, uh, look, wake up, smell the roses, guys. He was here, and you missed him. And then not only did you miss him, he was here, and you crucified him. And so, as the story comes to a close here, and Peter proclaims all of this, the weight of those words, as you can imagine, I'm sure, begin to set in. See, people saw the power of Jesus. They witnessed and saw their own sin problem. And they understood that Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah. And so maybe you're thinking, okay, bro, how do you know that they recognize him to be the Messiah? Well, if you kind of skip ahead to Acts chapter 4, it says this in Acts 4.4. But many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of men came to about 5,000 and so you can picture yourself surrounded by more than 5,000 people. Roughly 5,000 people came to the kingdom of Jesus that day. And they came to Christ. And what a powerful sign. And so as we mentioned at the beginning, that 65 AD was probably the year that this took place. So roughly 2,000 years later, maybe you're sitting here thinking, okay, Pat, this is an awesome story. I get it. It's in the Bible. But if I'm sitting here today, what does this have to do with me? Well, it means this for you and for me, that we are separated from God by sin, which can only be cured by forgiveness from God. And that forgiveness is radical. And so I want, to, I want to show you two things. I want to show you two aspects of radical forgiveness, or rather, two people whom radical forgiveness is for. And I want to speak to two people this morning, to the believer and to the unbeliever. And first, I want to show you that radical forgiveness is the cure for the unbeliever. And so again, maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, all of this is fine and dandy. That was an awesome story. The lame guy was healed. It's great. But again, what does this have to do with me? And if you're here today, and you are not in Christ Jesus. And if you remember the lame beggar, you're more like that lame beggar than you think. 
If you're not in Christ, you may not be necessarily physically lame, but you're certainly spiritually lame. The whole narrative of the Bible says that we have all sinned and gone astray. All of us. And as we mentioned Adam and Eve briefly earlier, Adam and Eve, we can think back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, is an actual historical account, and we have God in the Garden of Eden. They directly disobeyed a command from God. And because of this disobedience, sin enters the equation. And before that sin, before it entered the equation, they lived in perfect harmony with God. But now there's a fraction. The relationship has been severed. As we fast forward to the New Testament, Paul says this in Romans 5, that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men. See, without Christ, we're beyond just spiritually lame. Paul says that we're spiritually dead in Ephesians 2. Dead in our sins. And Paul then says in Romans 3 that none is righteous. No, not one. You see, God's requirement for you and for me is this. None other than perfection. It has nothing to do with being a good person. God, the God of the Bible, the God who spoke all of creation into existence, the God who knit you together in your mother's womb, as the psalmist says in in, uh, Psalm 139, demands perfection from you. So I'd say the bar's set pretty high. But we all know if we're being open and honest with one another, we all know that perfection isn't the reality. We can't be perfect. We're unable to live up to God's standard. And so like the, better, like the beggar, we're unable to spiritually walk. And then if you remember the other group of people in the story, the Jews that, that Peter accused of crucifying Christ, if you remember them, you're more like them than you think. You see, you and I, we essentially were there. We stood amongst the crowds that looked on and mocked Jesus. It was our sin, both mine and yours, that put him there and that put Jesus on the cross. And and not just Peter, but again, the whole biblical narrative indicts us and accuses us of our sin. Jesus himself said that he didn't come for those who are healthy, but for those who are sick. Jesus recognized as he steps out of heaven that mankind is sick. And so my friend, you, if you're here today and you are not in Christ, you are in need of a physician. And thankfully, the Bible calls Jesus the great physician. And if you remember the words of Isaiah in Isaiah 53, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. It was the sins of the world that Jesus went to the cross, reconciling reconciling filthy, broken, wrecked, spiritually depraved sinners to a holy God. And so as we talk this morning, are you starting to see and understand what we mean by radical forgiveness? If you're here today and your spiritual sickness has never been cured by radical forgiveness, then there's that's found in Jesus, then just as Peter urged the crowd, I urge you as well, come. Come and lay down your sin. Come and confess it and repent of your sin. And Jesus says that there's, there's only one way. It's not about putting your faith in a religious system. It's not about putting your faith in Randall Church or the chapel or Grace Baptist or St. Anthony's. It's not about a church. It's about the power of Jesus, and it's about the power that is in Jesus' name. Jesus says this in the New Testament in John 14. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. So firstly, radical forgiveness is the cure for the unbeliever. And I told you I wanted to speak to two people, and I want to speak to the believer. Secondly, I want to show you that radical forgiveness is the cure for the believer. And the pastor and theologian, John Piper, some of you might, might know him, he, says, he, he makes this statement, and I think it's absolutely beautiful. He says this, So it rests upon us, demands that we cannot keep, 
and a curse that we cannot bear. Let me just say that one more time. It rests upon us, demands that we cannot keep, and a curse that we cannot bear. Okay, why did you just say this statement is beautiful? God demands perfection, which we can't keep. And the curse of a sin is a curse that we cannot bear. Why is this a beautiful statement? It's beautiful because despite of these two truths that all of the Bible points to, despite of these two truths, if we are in Christ, if you're here today and you're a believer and a follower and a truster of Jesus and you have given your life to Jesus, then you are deemed righteous. The demand of perfection that was placed upon you was satisfied in Jesus. And the curse of sin that was on you, that is your DNA, is completely put away by the blood of the Lamb that was slain for the sin of the world. And it's at the moment of salvation when an unrepentant sinner calls upon the name of, the Jesus, of Jesus, confesses their sin, and turns to Christ. It's at that moment that we become righteous. This is why the gospel exists. This is why we can define the Greek word euangelion or gospel as good news. It's the best news there is. And for those who of us who are in Christ, Christians, believers, we also know that it doesn't mean that we're perfect. And in fact, John captures this thought when he makes this statement in 1 John 1.8. If we confess to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And so if we're being open and honest with one, with one another today, Pastor Milo, Brian, Mario, all of the elders, all of us who are in Christ, we still all struggle with sin. And we are in such need of grace because we fall short of God's desire for perfection. And so when we come to the cross, we're in need of radical forgiveness. It's a daily thing. And we know, again, if we're open and we're honest, our battle with sin can be a battle. It can be frustrating. It can be demoralizing. And we often fall. We're so prone to do. But thankfully, John gives us that next verse in 1 John. In 1 John 1, 9, John says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christian, believer, brother and sister in Christ, if you're here today, I don't want you to miss this. You are positionally in Christ. There is nothing that can separate you from God. It's not your battle with sin. It's not the temptation of sin. Nothing can separate you. Once you have been redeemed, and sealed with the Holy Spirit, as Paul says in Ephesians 1. Sealed as a guarantee. Nothing can separate you from God. Paul says this in Philippians 1.6, and as I close and the band's going to come up, I want to read this verse to you. The Apostle Paul says this, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What a glorious promise, what a glorious Savior, and what glorious radical forgiveness. And so I'm going to do this. The band's kind of coming up and getting, getting settled. I'm going to pray for us. And if you're here today, you are one of those two people. You have either yet to come and to bow your knee at the cross of Jesus. I'm going to urge you to do so and to come. This is the safest place in the world to do so. The band's going to play. I'm going to pray. And you could come to the back, and I'll, I'll wait back there for a few moments. And come, and we'll talk about your spiritual need. And then if you're the other person here today, if you're a believer, <laughs> praise God, obviously. But if you're here today and you're struggling with something, or you just need some prayer, if, if we say that we are without sin, we lie and we so deceive ourselves. I want you to come, find, find an elder, find a pastor to pray with. And find encouragement in the fact that positionally you are in Jesus. You have once and for all, for all eternity, found radical forgiveness. There's nothing that can separate you from God. 
So let me pray. God, I thank you so much for the radical forgiveness that is found in Jesus. I thank you that you don't leave it up to ourselves to earn our way into heaven, that we don't have to offset some balance scale of good works. You call us to live a certain way as Christians, yes, and we want to glorify you through how we live. But it was grace that we have been saved. It was not of works. It was not of our own might. It was the fact that your son stepped out of heaven, who is God, stepped down to earth, lived in our mess, who is tempted in every way as we are tempted, but yet lived in perfection. Jesus, you satisfied God's demand for perfection. Not only did you satisfy the demand for perfection, you cured us of our disease. We were plagued by sin. We were unable, like the beggar, to spiritually walk. But now, for those of us who found radical forgiveness at the cross, we can jump, we can shout, not only can we, can we walk, we can run. We can run in freedom. And though, God, we stumble at times and we fall, and we battle with sin, we know the glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus that nothing can separate us from you. Lord, in our struggle, help us to remember that. Help us to rest in that. Help us every time when we fall or, or when we're distracted or when temptation knocks. Lord Jesus, be enough. Satisfy all of our desires. Satisfy all of our shortcomings. Lord, if there is someone here today who's not yet believed in the power of Jesus, Lord, work, have your way. God, may we respond to you in song in such a way that proclaims your majesty, that proclaims the gloriousness of your gospel and the radical forgiveness that we can find there. We love you and we ask these things in your name. Amen. Oh, who thirsts?